Hey bosses, this week's sponsor is Fundrise, bringing you the future of real estate investing. Get started for as little as $1,000 at investlikeaboss.com slash fundrise. Find out more during the break. Welcome to the Invest Like a Boss podcast. I'm Sam Marks. And I'm Johnny FD. We're self-made entrepreneurs who invest our own money and use modern technology to invest like a boss. Join us each week for exclusive interviews with our network of modern investors, business owners, and multimillionaires to discover new ways to invest our hard-earned cash. Hey guys, it's Johnny FD, and welcome to episode 51 of the Invest Like a Boss podcast. I'm here with Sam Marks. Johnny, big high five and a hug for you. And speaking of hugs, we have Peter Hug on this week, who is the Director of Global Trade at Kitco Metals. Man, that was so corny. I love it. <laughs> I got to mix it up every now and then. <laughs> Definitely. So to be honest, I'm not that big, you know, I don't invest in gold. I'm not that big, that big of a fan of investing in precious metals. But the reason why I'm excited to listen to this week's episode is Peter is going to explain who actually invests in precious metals, the four you know types of people that invest, and why maybe you should as well. Yeah, I'm super excited to hear his views. Also, you know, the market's been on a tear since President Trump has been in office, so I'm excited to hear like how how metals play in your portfolio when a lot of people have risk on. A lot of people are investing in the equity markets now. Who's investing in gold? I want to know. And I want to know, does it belong in our portfolio when there's an optimistic future ahead? Yeah, definitely. So let's just jump into this episode and we can talk about what me and you are personally doing in our opinion of it afterwards. Let's kick it off. Hey, bosses. Have you ever wanted to invest in real estate but didn't want the headache or risk of becoming a landlord? Well, Fundrise may be the answer. They allow you to earn passive income while they do the work. Get started today and skip the waitlist by using our special partner link at investlikeyourboss.com slash fundrise. Guys, welcome back. Peter, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. A pleasure to be here, Sam. And where are you based, Peter? I saw on your Skype that it looked like Palm <laughs> Springs, but I wasn't sure. Well, I'm, I'm responsible for the, uh, the trading activities for the Kitco group as a whole, but uh, my primary responsibility is for the Hong Kong office as well. Uh, so uh, November of last year, I became a U.S. resident. So right now I'm working out of California. Okay. All right. Well, <laughs> yeah, a whole different tax situation there from Hong Kong, especially being in California. But uh, Yeah, better than Hong Kong, but uh, worse than Hong Kong, but certainly better than Canada. Yeah, oh, yeah, definitely. So you're, you're Canadian, I guess, originally. Correct. Yeah. And you spent a lot of time in Hong Kong? Well, we have an office there, so uh, my line responsibility is for that op operation in Hong Kong. I don't spend a lot of time there, but I'm usually there somewhere between uh, four to eight times a year. Oh, wow. Okay, that's awesome. That's definitely one of my favorite cities. What a yeah. what an energetic, hustling place. It's super cool. Um, that's actually where – well, I'll get into it in a second, but that's where I became familiar with Kitco and, and bought my first coin. Uh, but before we get into that, I'm just curious a little bit about your background in finance. I know you've been in the game for a while and just curious to hear, you know, a little bit more of your experience. Oh, it goes back a long time. I've, uh, I got out of University of Toronto in 1972 and I started uh, my career quite by accident with a foreign exchange dealer, which was the largest retail global foreign exchange dealer at the time, a company called Deke Pereira. Mm -hmm. uh, long since gone, they were sold to uh, Thomas Cook in the, uh, in the 80s. Uh, so I cut my teeth in the uh, foreign exchange market from about 73 to 76 uh, and then um, was hired by a bank that wanted to set up a precious metals operation in the Toronto market. They were based in uh, Quebec and at that time in Canada there was the uh, referendum to separate Quebec from Canada. So their board of directors decided it might be prudent to have a uh, an operation outside of the province of Quebec and they opened up one in Toronto. And uh, they were a small retail metals dealer in Montreal uh, and wanted to expand that into more of a wholesale uh, type of trading operation. Uh, so we opened up the Toronto operation uh, for a company called Guardian Trust that traded foreign exchange on a wholesale level. And uh, then we developed a precious metals program and became uh, next to the Bank of Nova Scotia, Canada's second largest precious metals dealer uh, throughout most of the 80s. Very cool. I, I just remember you saying Thomas Cook. I lived in London for a while and there's always that chiming in my ear saying, why book it, Thomas Cook it? <laughs> not, not much to do with metals, but uh, but interesting anyways. And now, Peter, so your your title is Director of Global, Global Trade at Kitco. What specifically does that entail? You said it is kind of it's closely tied to also the Hong Kong operations. 
Well, we have uh, we have locations. Uh, we have clients globally. Uh, we have operations, uh, physical operations in New York, uh, Montreal, and in Hong Kong. Uh, but we do have uh, storage and and uh, tr- uh, trading relationships uh, on a global basis uh, throughout Europe, uh, throughout uh, the Far East, uh, Singapore. Um, we also do some business in South America. So my primary responsibility is to uh, to manage the uh, risk profile for the company. When you know people buy and sell precious metals from us, it obviously uh, creates a risk at the time of transaction. Mm. Uh, so uh, I run the trading operation uh, to make sure we mitigate that risk. Uh, I also uh, do a daily blog for Kitco.com, and uh, I guess for lack of a better way to say it, I'm sort of the face for Kitco. Uh, I represent Kitco at a variety of conferences uh, throughout the year, uh, both in North America and in Europe, mm-hmm. uh, where I'm uh, generally a speaker or I participate in uh, panels. Uh, and the other part of my business is to uh, to uh, interface with our Wholesale suppliers with the uh, uh, with the sovereign mints uh, that we have relationships with uh, to develop uh, business and to also uh, just to maintain relationships. Mm-hmm. Very cool. That sounds like a a very busy and interesting day to day operation for you. And um, just curious because you've been in the markets for so long, not just metals but all around finance. You know, what are your current views of the markets where they're at now and this recent? kind of surge that we've had when you say markets you talking about the equity markets or the yeah. precious metals? Uh, yeah well uh, they're both quite interesting right now but uh, <laughs> i was thinking more just uh of equities well the equity market i think uh you know i mean when when uh, president trump uh, got elected i mean i don't think anybody expected it uh and uh you know the market moved on on what was perceived to be sort of a new era you know mm-hmm. uh, america first and, uh, you know, Trump made a number of promises, uh, you know, uh, to reduce taxes significantly, to, you know, spend a trillion dollars in infrastructure, to repeal and replace Obamacare. Um, you know, I think the equity market took that as, uh, you know, somebody that, you know, might be different from the status quo that's actually going to get something done in Washington. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, aggressively bought the U.S. growth story, uh, which already was sort of growing still under Obama. Uh, U.S. growth, although anemic, was still at 2% when you, uh, when you compare it, uh, to, you know, Japan, which was almost at, uh, you know, at a 0% growth in the Europeans, which were, uh, struggling with a little, a uh, little over a half a percent growth. Right. So the U.S. was already on a growth path. And, you know, the equity markets took that, especially from the perspective of, of how he was going to spend the money. It was, it was sort of implied that because of that, the Fed uh, would have no option but to raise rates. So the, the first leg of the equity market was the, uh, was the financial stocks, uh, which had been sort of depressed uh, almost since uh, 2012 because of the zero interest rate policy of the Fed it makes it difficult for banks to uh, earn a spread on their deposits. Now, with interest rates expected to rise, and they've already uh, risen twice since December of uh, last year, the the uh, net income to the banks was expected to go up. And obviously, uh, uh, from an earnings perspective, their, their earnings were to go up and the banks led the charge. Uh-huh. Where I look at the equity markets right now, and, and you can already see the hiccups, uh, you know, based on some of the issues that uh, uh, President Trump is now having with uh, trying to get the health care uh, reform through. Within his own party, I mean, he has uh, dissenters uh, on the Republican side. Uh, he still needs some twenty odd votes on the Republican side to get this uh, bill passed tomorrow. Uh, there's a few cracks there, so I think the equity market was is was valued at, especially at twenty one thousand dollars, at perfection. And that perfection was that you know U.S. growth was going to accelerate from you know the current anemic pace of about one and a half percent to four percent. Uh, jobs would be created on mass. Uh, corporations would start making uh, uh, money hand over fist, and you know everything was perfectly priced. And then all of a sudden, we get a hiccup, uh, and it now there's a problem with the health care bill, and it's questionable whether he'll get his fiscal plan through. Uh, you know, it's one thing to promise a you know a trillion dollars in infrastructure spending, and then dropping tax rates from thirty five to twenty percent. Mm-hmm. The real question comes down to how do you pay for that? Uh, you know, the U.S. is coming up to a debt ceiling in June. And, you know, what I'm sort of understanding from from Trump's vision is he wants to do all of this now uh, and pay for it later in the sense that all of his policies will increase growth from, uh, you know, one and a half to four percent. 
And with that type of vibrant growth, you're going to get much more in, in the way of tax receipts and that'll go a long way to pay for these, uh, these bills. And, you know, I'm just not sure that that's, that's an accurate portrayal of what's going to happen. And so the market is a little cautious here and any type of hiccup in any of his plans, any kind of delays, any kind of uh, issues where his credibility comes, uh, comes, uh, to light, such as his uh, accusal of uh, President Obama wiretapping his phones. <laughs> All of these things hurt in him being able to gain political capital mm. uh, to be able to get his agenda through. So the market is looking at this saying, you know, we might be a little ahead of ourselves. And I think that's why you probably saw that uh, sell-off yesterday, and, and it continues to sell off today uh, in the Dow. Really interesting perspective. You mentioned the U.S. debt ceiling coming up this summer in June. I believe there's a, a huge debt repayment by Greece that do about that time. So that could be an interesting time, always considering summer never seems to be that strong in the equity markets. And yet you've also got the French and German elections coming up. So far, the, you know, with the Dutch elections, uh, the, the nationalists uh, uh, didn't win. Uh, so, you know, the populist movement in the Netherlands wasn't as, as strong as it was in the U.S. But mm -hmm. there is still a risk that uh, Le Pen might win the French election. And she is uh, extremely against the Eurozone and yeah. against uh, immigration. So there are some macro events coming up in, in the short term that could also influence uh, not only the equity markets, but also the precious metals markets. You would typically use leave this question for the end, but I'm, I'm dying to ask early on just because of, you have such an interesting view of the markets and so much experience. And what is, can you share a little bit of, of kind of what your asset allocation is of your own personal investments, what you like to invest in? Yeah, it sort of depends on you on <laughs> on your age. I mean, it, there really is a rule of thumb. I, you know, I, when I was back in the seventies and eighties, I, I had my securities designation, so I, I was managing mutual funds as well. And you're taught early on that you need to design your portfolio, uh, you know, based on the risk tolerance of the client, but also, uh, you know, based to some extent on the age of the client. Uh, you know, you can be much more aggressive on a portfolio allocation when somebody's in their 20s and 30s and they've got, you know, 20 to 30 years of earning power ahead of them. Mm -hmm. And they've got the time frame to, you know, withstand a downturn in the market. You know, somebody that's in their 60s, uh, you know, the key element there is to preserve assets and to preserve wealth uh, into retirement years. So you have a different type of uh, uh, portfolio model, uh, again, depending on your age and your risk tolerance. Uh, I mean, if you're specific to precious metals, uh, I've had people ever since I've been in this biz business ask me, uh, you know, should I buy gold? And, uh, you know, we've, I've done a study uh, going all the way back, uh, probably more in my memory than in, 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 in actual facts that I've written down, looking at sort of a, the profile of, of people that buy precious metals. And, you know, that profile in the last 40 years hasn't changed. You know, I'm still able to break the profile down into basically four groups. Uh, now, there is some overlap between the groups, but uh, I, I basically see the psychology of a gold investor falling into four groups. Mm -hmm. So my first question when somebody says, should I buy gold? I usually ask them the question, what's the motivation? And depending on the motivation, then I can give, uh, you know, a better answer as to should they buy gold and if they buy gold, how they should buy gold. Right. So, I mean, if you look at the, again, if we have some time, if you look at the first group, uh, it's, I don't want to put labels on the group, but I sort of consider them the, um, again, for lack of a, a, you know, you can call them realists, you can call them end of worlders, mm -hmm. uh, but, but they honestly believe that the, uh, the U.S. government uh, is going to ban gold ownership, uh, the economic system is going to collapse, and precious metals are going to be needed, uh, you know, for a barter, uh, for a barter system. Uh, when fiat money has uh, is worthless, and you know it, it sounds like a fringe group, but it's uh, but it's actually a, a very substantial uh, proportion of the physical offtake of the of, of metals in the U.S. market. Yeah, and uh, you know they buy uh, because they're scared, and they also buy because dealers are telling them the world is coming to an end and gold is going to five thousand dollars an ounce, and uh, they they believe that story, and uh, they are buyers of physical metal. And they are, it's not relevant, as relevant to them what the price is, because they believe down the road, the price is going to be substantially higher. Mm -hmm. They do tend to buy smaller units of, of gold bars uh, because of their perceived, uh, uh, of their perception of where gold prices are going to be. They want small units in grams and in one ounce bars. 
because they're going to need that to barter and it's going to be worth a lot of money and buying a big bar will not give them the liquidity that's going to be needed when Armageddon comes. Yeah. The second group is a group, I, again, for lack of a, a name, I'll call them the conservative investor. You know, they've been sort of taught and brought up with the fact that, you know, you should hold a percentage of your portfolio in gold. Pick the number. It could be 5, 10, 15 percent mm-hmm. uh, as a hedge or as a uh, sort of safe haven play uh, on a protection against your portfolio. Uh, these investors, I, I don't have a problem with the concept of holding 10 percent of your assets in gold. Uh, but the the analysts uh, or talking heads that usually give this advice usually end the sentence there, hold 10 percent of your assets in gold. What they should be saying is gold should form a part of your portfolio. But as part of your portfolio, it still needs to be adjusted mm-hmm. and it needs to be uh, you know, you need to look at your portfolio and balance it on a continuous basis. So to give you an example, if, you know, when gold was at $800 in, uh, in uh, 2008 and you uh, wanted to put 10% of your assets uh, of your portfolio in gold, and it doesn't matter what you bought, but you bought gold at, uh, at $800 an ounce. Now, in 2011, gold went to $1,900 an ounce. Well, if you would have looked at your portfolio at that time, you would have probably determined that your 10% was now maybe 18% of your portfolio. Yeah. At that point, you need to sell 8%. Uh, vice versa, had you bought at $1,900 in 2011, and then in uh, 2015, in December, when gold hit 1040 your portfolio uh, position in gold was probably not 10% anymore. It was probably 4%. Mm-hmm. At that point, you buy 6% more. So you've always got that cushion of 10% there. And in that type of context, you tend to be adding to your position when gold prices are weaker and uh, selling your position or lightening up on your position as gold prices rise. Mm. Yeah, makes sense. You know, the third group is uh, what I call the trader. And uh, they don't care if gold goes up or down. All they want is volatility. They're, they're as comfortable being short the market as they are long the market. Uh, they tend to be more uh, inclined to be investing in precious metals through the futures markets or options markets or where they can get leverage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, they're not married. To, uh, they're not married to the price. Uh, they could be bullish at nine o'clock in the morning and bearish at ten o'clock in the morning. And these are guys that are not buying physical gold. They're buying. They're not buying physical yeah, because when you buy physical gold, the premiums that you pay, uh, depending on the bar size that you buy. It, doesn't make sense if you're a trader. I mean, you don't want to pay a 3% premium for a gold coin if you, if your object is to trade that gold coin. Right. You know, the gold market's got to move up almost $40 before you're at a break-even point. So you want to try to invest in a vehicle that's as close to the price of gold as possible, and that could be an ETF, could even be a gold mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's something uh, that you want to be as tight to the market price as possible because you're object here, your objective here is to trade and to try to make money on either being long or short the metal. Mm-hmm. Now, the fourth group, and it's, it, they, it, it sounds like a, a flimsy group, but it actually takes off quite a, a lot of offtake off the physical market is what I call the collector. Mm-hmm. And, and, and these are people that buy, you, you'll tell by my intonation that I'm not really thrilled with, the, with this uh, concept, but they buy stuff that is made by the uh, the sovereign mints in the world could be a Superman coin, uh, uh, could be a NASDAQ coin, you know, just sort of collectible stuff because they think it's cool. But the premiums to intrinsic metal content on this, on these products is horrendous. I mean, could be 50, 60, 70% over the, over the metal content, but you're buying it because it's cool. Usually comes in a box, usually comes with a certificate. Uh, people that tend to buy these things, either do it as gifts uh, or they think it's cool. They usually end up in a drawer somewhere, and somewhere down the road, somebody inherits them and ends up selling them to a dealer that ends up melting them. <laughs> I, I I heard a story of somebody who found um what what are the what are the huge bars called the good delivery bars the standard bars yeah and it was like co- it was covered in a bunch of stickers and like it, it was sitting there for some thirty or forty years because yeah. it just looked like a piece of crap and <laughs> it turned out it was it was like you know worth half a million dollars or something. Yeah, I, I had a guy uh, back in the uh, in the early '80s that bought thousand ounce silver bars, and he bought he bought a lot. Uh, I can't remember the amount, two hundred bars, but you know, two hundred thousand ounces of silver. And I ran into him about ten years later, and he uh, invited me over to his house, and we're out in the patio. And he said, uh, 
So I asked him, I said, do you still have your silver? He said, absolutely. He says, you're standing on it. <laughs> and, he, and, he, and he turned them into paver stones. Oh, no way. Yeah, and he just painted them. And uh, I couldn't tell. He uh, turned them upside down and they looked like paver stones. And I thought I was standing on a, on a paved patio, but they were all silver bars. Well, they're still worth a lot of money though, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the paint doesn't affect it at all. Uh, you know. So he basically did it just to hide where he's yeah, hiding just, it. He didn't have any place where he could figure out where he could hide 200,000 ounces of silver. He didn't oh, want that's so paste, funny. He didn't have a store, uh, you know, a, a bank deposit, a, a box that was yeah. big so he figured, well, how am I going to do this? So uh, he basically just painted them and left them in, cl- in clear view. And uh, obviously nobody in the, in the 10 years had noticed that they were silver bars. That's a great story. That's like the real red carpet being rolled out for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, he fooled me. I, I couldn't tell. And, I, you know, I've been in the business since uh, 73. I was standing on them. I didn't know they were bars. Yeah, all feels the same underfoot. You probably hadn't st- stood on too much silver in the past, though, even though you traded a lot. Probably right there as well. But again, it's the psychology. You just don't expect something like that so you don't look for it and what about all this this gold that when you walk down the streets of hong kong is a great example you see all these gold shops and there's these kind of gold crafts with these enormous price tags on them it's like someone's built like kind of crafted a house out of gold you know like hand-sized house out of gold and there's all these shops that are selling these things do those things hold their value or are those given as gifts? What's the purpose yeah, of buying no, no. that stuff? Hong Kong market, the Chinese market is, is uh, really does fall a lot into the sort of fourth dimension of the investor uh, psychology that I mentioned, uh, which is the collectors. They're very, very big on giving gifts. Mm-hmm. Uh, they tend to hold a gold. They, they tend not to be traders. Uh, when they are traders, again, uh, they tend to, to be on the uh, the margin uh, markets uh, that the banks offer where you can get leverage of 80, 80, 20 on, on, on a transaction. The people that buy the physical gold, they tend to hold on to it. Again, does it have collectible value? Probably not. So you always have the intrinsic value. Uh, it's probably not 24 carat. Uh, I would guess that, that, that these items are anywhere between uh, 14 and 22 carat. So you would be able to get the intrinsic value of the gold out based again on the percentage of gold that's in the piece, whether it's 14 or 22 or 24 karat. And, but then it would be a process you'd have to take it to someone if they didn't want to buy it for the, for the uniqueness of the piece. They're just buying it for the weight. They would weigh the gold. Um, they would probably discount that by 5% and then they would send it and have it refined and melted into their account. Makes sense. Cool. So my first experience, I just want to tell you how I I came to know Kitco originally was I was in Hong Kong and I was working on kind of internationalizing myself. So in fact, the last episode we did was on flags theory and, and um, planting flags overseas. And I was trying to get a safety deposit box in Hong Kong. And as you sure probably know, it can take years. Um, so I was on the waiting list. I was only in my mid 20s. I was on the waiting list for a couple of years. And finally, I got one. Uh, and they said, you know, come, come get the key, do, do all the admin stuff. And I was like, okay, what well, I, I got to put something in this, right? And what's better to put in it than, than a little bit of gold. So I called a couple of my friends. I'm like, you know, where do I buy gold? And my buddy put me in contact with this other guy who had apparently been investing in gold his entire life in acquiring physical gold. And he now owned 18 different safety deposit boxes in the, in Hong Kong, all spread out around Hong Kong. And all of them were at full capacity with, with gold and silver. Wow. So nobody knew where to buy this stuff better than this guy. And he's like, hey, let's meet up. We'll go get coffee. I'll show you where to buy it. And he took me into the office. I, I don't know if it's in Shenguan or, or Central. It's in Shenguan. Shenguan, yeah. Um, and that was such a cool experience. Like it, I'd never bought gold before, but going up there and – you know, kind of flipping through and seeing what was available. And then they, they, you know, they show it to you and you can buy it right there on the spot. It was really fun. So I went and got money, bought one gold coin, went back to my safety deposit box, put the gold coin in, and it's still sitting there today about five years later. Oh, cool. (laughs) So I'm trying to understand really kind of based on the four types of gold buyers that you just mentioned, it's almost, I almost feel like I'm a hybrid. So I have, I have probably... Uh, two or three percent of my net wealth in gold coin, like gold and silver, but then okay. I also have about the same in gold ETFs. Um, so I like having physical gold. I, I think it's a cool thing to have, almost in a collectible sense. I think it's a smart thing to have near your destinations in, in case there is some type of systematic event, um, and you couldn't get money out of ATMs or or banks or for some reason. But then I also own it in my 
you know, my kind of my stock bond portfolio, my equities portfolio, almost as like a hedge. So I, I guess I'm kind of a blend of two or three of those different tiers. Yeah. Again, as I mentioned, when I started it, there is crossover. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're like, if you're in the first group, which I always find, uh, you know, a little perplexing when I go to the conferences and I speak to, uh, uh, to audiences, uh, uh, there's obviously a portion of the audience that that sort of falls into that first group where they think uh, you know everything is coming to an end. Mm-hmm. And what I find ironic is I ask the question. Some of them have the guts to put their hands up when I ask the question. I ask them where they buy their gold, and uh, well, let me rephrase it. I, I'm more specific. I ask them if they buy their gold from a U.S. dealer, and all of them to a man almost put uh, and woman put their hands up. And I said, you know, the logic doesn't make sense. If you really believe that the U.S. government is going to confiscate your gold. And the issue I have with that is if you honestly believe the U.S. government is going to confiscate your gold or there's going to be a problem with the U.S. financial system, the first place the government's going to go if they want to ban gold ownership is they're going to go to a U.S. dealer and find out who that U.S. dealer sold the gold. Uh, paper trail. So, yeah. So, I mean, if you're going to do it and you are worried about that, there are so many international dealers. Uh, I mean, Kitco's been around since 77 uh, that, you know, offer uh, services where you can buy gold from uh, a dealer outside of your country. So not only do you get uh, portfolio diversification, you get ge- geographical diversification. Uh, where they also offer segregated storage accounts where the gold is held in your name, physically segregated, mm. uh, and it is audited and, uh, and independently confirmed to you by the, by the depository. And you could have that gold, uh, again, held in Canada, in Hong Kong, in Singapore, in Europe. Um, so you, you, you actually have a mechanism of getting your assets out of the country and holding gold without uh, any interference from the U.S. government. And then you look at the country on where you're going to store it. Now, you know, China is not going to roll over and give the U.S. any information. Canada has very specific laws on privacy. Uh, there is no such thing as general subpoena powers in Canada where a government uh, can come in and say, we want we want information on all your clients. It has to be a very specific subpoena. Uh, it has to name the person, has to provide the charge and has to be court ordered. So even if the American IRS or, or government agency came to a Canadian bank and said, look, I need information on all your American customers, uh, they're just legally not allowed to give it out. The American authority would have to file the specific subpoena through the Canadian uh, authorities, Canadian court system. And then depending on the relevance of the subpoena, the Canadian court would then issue the subpoena. So there's a number of, of you know benefits of having your assets outside of the country of residence. If again you are worried uh, about your your own country, and I, I'm not that worried about the U.S. government uh, banning gold ownership. I'm also not that worried about the U.S. financial system imploding. Mm-hmm. But for clients, uh, you know, that are in other countries, like some of the Eastern European countries, some of the South American countries. Uh, this really is a, a, a serious concern, and they and they do want to geographically sort of balance their portfolio and, yeah. and, and move some of their assets out of their country, their home country, because they are genuinely worried that uh, you know an event could occur that could uh, impair their assets in their home country. Yeah, it seems to be why Miami real estate is just going through the roof because all a lot of people from South America of money are just trying to move some money into a physical asset just just over the ocean, uh, which seems to be Miami. And some of the real estate prices there are just totally insane, but it's a store of value. Yeah, same thing happened in Vancouver when the, uh, the Brits uh, handed over Hong Kong to China. They weren't sure how that was going to go. So the Chinese, because it was only a quarter million dollars, took their money from Hong Kong and they bought real estate in Vancouver. Quarter million dollars got them citizenship. Because of the surge, the real estate prices quadrupled. And then when Hong Kong settled down and it looked like everything was going to be uh, good for business, they sold their houses, made four times the money on it, moved back to Hong Kong, but they're still holding Canadian passports in case they need to get on the plane. <laughs> Life is good. I-, I wish I could buy a-, a place in Vancouver now for $250,000 would- yeah, <laughs> and get I- a citizenship. <laughs> <laughs> Peter, I want to jump into some some listener questions um, just to make sure okay. we get through some of them when we have time. Mostly all related to Kitco and also metal specifically. So the first question is kind of two-part. For someone that is not buying because they think the world is going to end. That's just kind of your, your typical physical gold buyer. What do you think the 
appropriate amount of metals is in a portfolio? And the second part of that question is, what do you think the, the ratio should be between gold and silver? I'll answer the second part first, mm -hmm. uh, that there are times when I want to be much more aggressive on silver than gold. Uh, I, I tend to, as a trader, I tend to look at the ratios between the two metals. If you believe uh, you're going to get an inflationary surge along with an economic recovery, uh, I think silver will uh, outperform gold substantially mm -hmm. um, because it does have an industrial component to its price. Uh, and there is a uh, sort of a supply demand equilibrium right now in silver. It's it's moving closer to a shortage in silver relative demand mm -hmm. uh, from a supply side. So if you're bullish the metals from a percentage basis, I like silver better than gold. As far as the percentage in a portfolio, it, again, you know, the percentage comes down to what your perception is of where, uh, you know, the financial system is. Mm -hmm. You know, right now, uh, I probably would give it a bit of time only because I'm, I'm a, I just want to see if, if Trump is capable of getting anything through. If he starts getting some of his fiscal policies through, it would strike me that the Fed might continue to be somewhat more aggressive on their interest rate tightening cycle, uh, which would be a headwind for the precious metals. If Trump runs into some trouble here, I would suspect the Fed is going to hold off on raising rates in June uh, and may not raise again this year. And in that context, uh, you know, I think the metals have got much more on the upside from a legs point of view. Again, with, you know, gold is not the end all be all. You know, I mean, people say gold, it's you always got to own it. That's you know not necessarily true. I mean, had you bought gold in 2011 at nineteen hundred dollars, you wouldn't be a happy camper right now. <laughs> Nor had you bought silver at $50 in, uh, in uh, 2011. Um, so there's times to be aggressive and times to be somewhat uh, more cautious. At these levels, silver at $17.5, I see your downside maximum here, maybe $2, maybe $3, uh, with uh, good upside potential. Gold at $12.50, um, I think your downside's protected at about $11.80. But I'd like to see gold break up through 1265 and generate some momentum before I started becoming more bullish and then starting to call for 1350. So at these levels right now, I think a 5% holding in precious metals mm -hmm. is okay, assuming that the stock market doesn't melt down. And that is a big caveat. Mm. And I just wanted to back up to what you mentioned about the Fed, because just on a fundamental basis, so if the Fed raises rates, it puts a headwind to metals as a whole? Well, generally what happens when you, you've got metals that are basically a non-performing asset in, from the perspective of yield, mm -hmm. unless you buy mining shares uh, where, where the, uh, the miners actually paying a dividend. Mm -hmm. So commodities are priced in US dollars. As the Fed raises rates, uh, the general trend will be for a stronger dollar, which is generally a negative for commodity prices. Got it. Unless the Fed is raising rates and they're behind the curve because inflation is taking off, mm. that is not yet apparent. And inflation with gold will drive prices up or metals as a whole will drive prices up? or Correct, because you're debasing the purchasing power of the dollar and that'll drive metals prices higher. Now, it looks like inflation is starting to creep up. It's uh, almost, well, it's around the 2% target level where the Fed is, uh, but you know, we're not in the 70s where you had inflation running to 18% because it was a different economy. Uh, this economy right now, the productivity in this economy is driven a lot by the web. Mm -hmm. So you, I'm not sure you get the same kind of price inflation pressures that we saw in the 70s developing in this new economy. So the jury's still out on inflation, but I think the Fed is behind the curve. So should the economies take off and inflation pick up and start to accelerate, you're going to see gold take off, like, and it'll be won't be uh, as as extreme as it was in the '70s, where inflation reached 18 uh, percent. But the fact that the Fed's behind the curve in inflation would be very bullish to the metals. Got it. And how about for mints? Are there specific mints that you personally like, and or are the most liquid? If someone has physical metal and they they're worried about liquidity, is there a couple mints of choice? Yeah, again, you know, when I look at buying something, I don't look at buying something with the idea that, okay, I bought it in Toronto and I bought it from John Doe dealer. And in 20 years, John Doe dealer will be there and I want to sell it to him. If I'm going to buy something, 
I want to know that I've got, especially gold, I want to know that I've got liquidity outside of my market. And I'll give you an example on the gold eagle. And again, I don't want to upset people, but, you know, the gold eagle is probably the worst coin to invest in. I'll tell you why. You know, it's a rah-rah thing for Americans because it's a gold eagle, but it's a 22-carat coin. So that coin is extremely, uh, is not well accepted at all in Canada because it's a taxable product. It's not pure gold. It's, it's like a Krugerrand. It's 22 carat. Mm-hmm. The Chinese won't buy an eagle if you gave it to them at, at, at flat gold price. They want pure gold. They want four nines gold. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, there are a number of gold mi- uh, mints, uh, mints that offer four nines gold coins. The most obvious is the Royal Canadian Mint, which offers the gold maple leaf. Uh, then you have the uh, Australian mint. They offer the kangaroo. Uh, the British Royal Mint offers the Britannica. So, I mean, if you're going to buy a gold coin, why would you buy a 22 carat when you could buy a 24 carat coin? And ironically, at a cheaper premium. The U.S. Mint is the only mint that sells the gold eagle at a 3% premium, which at current market is about a $38 acquisition cost from a dealer by the dealer. Now they've got to mark it up. So you're talking $50 for the coin. A gold maple leaf, which is one ounce of gold and also 24 carat, and the gold Britannica out of Britain also trade one ounce trades at roughly dealer acquisition cost at $22. Hmm. So you're, you're paying an extra $15, $20 for an American Eagle that is not liquid outside. What's, I wouldn't say not liquid, but is certainly not as liquid and at times discounted outside of the United States. So that's the way I sort of look at preferences. There's nothing wrong with the Gold Eagle. I mean, if you stay within the U.S., uh, but if you want something that has more international demand, I wouldn't buy a Gold Eagle. Cool. Good insight. And Peter, at Kitco, are you guys kind of agnostic to metal prices? Is it, or do you, yeah. do you benefit a lot more when prices are higher? No, I mean, uh, again, uh, most dealers out there, and again, that, that was one of the caveats I wanted to mention is, you know, when you get a dealer telling you that gold's going to $5,000 an ounce, and for all I know, the dealer might be right. Mm-hmm. But you got to try to figure out what the motivation is from the dealer making that comment. Now, most dealers sell precious metals. So, I mean, you know, if you're selling shoes and say, I don't think it's a good idea and people should go barefoot, you're not going to be doing a great service to your business. So you're going to go out there and say, you know, you're crazy going barefoot when I've got something that'll protect your feet called shoes. So buy shoes for me. Most dealers have that attitude. Uh, You know, they they're always bullish gold. To me, I've been agnostic gold forever. I mean, again, I could be bullish at nine and bearish at ten. And, uh, and and we can prove that Kitco is neutral, and I'll tell you why in a minute. But you know what we like to do is educate the client uh, and let the client make their own decision. Uh, we make our money on volatility, and uh, so whether the price goes up or down, as long as there's movement in the price, uh, we'll we'll have volume, and that volume will generate uh, uh, revenue for Kitco. But what Kitco has that I have not seen any other dealer offer is we've got a website called Kitco.com, mm-hmm. and uh, Again, it's almost like a Chinese wall. You can go and read that every morning, and uh, you'll see that there are as many bearish commentaries on there as there are bullish commentaries. Cool. Yeah. And it's basically, it's an information source, and you can read it, and you can make your own decisions and and determine what you believe is the right course. And then from there, you can go to your dealer or Kitco and transact. I like that. I like that you guys are open and just kind of allowing dialogue to take place and allow people to make their own decisions. And does that, does that mean more of your business is transacted through your web versus in your retail stores? Well, on the retail side, we have a retail office in Montreal and in Hong Kong. But, uh, so most of our clients trade with us in two ways. One, it's online and that probably represents about 70% of our business. And, uh, the other thirty percent call into our trade desk. It's so much fun to go in and buy in person. I, I, if anyone gets to Hong Kong, I would definitely encourage them to stop in the Kitco store, buy themselves a little piece of coin. Um, what's the what's the most the, the highest volume coin that you guys sell uh, in in one of your retail stores? Uh, gold. Uh, our top seller is uh, is the one ounce gold maple leaf. Okay. Uh, in silver, um, the one ounce silver maple leaf and the one ounce silver eagle. Are, are the top sellers uh, for one ounce coins uh, in bars. 
Uh, one of the more popular bar sizes are 10-ounce bars. Um, we get them from the Royal Canadian Mint. They come with certificates. Uh, so you're not buying one ounce. You have 10 ounce. Uh, and the second, the third most popular item uh, in silver is the 100 ounce bar. Uh, that's made by a number of manufacturers, also including the Royal Canadian Mint. Uh, on gold, next to the one ounce uh, coins, um, one ounce bars, uh, and then uh, 10 ounce gold bars are the next most popular. Great. And just uh, one final question to wrap up, Peter, is just as a fun personal question, good delivery bars, who's buying those nowadays? Is it is it CEOs with a big ego or are they actually practical in some scenarios? Uh, very few retail investors, and I don't mean to downplay retail investors. I mean, a half a million dollars, not necessarily a retail purchase, but mm-hmm. uh, 400 ounce standard bars are generally traded between the banks and between central banks. Got it. Uh, between gold dealers and central banks. It's usually not a medium of trade between a dealer and their clients, although we do have funds, uh, you know, they could be pension funds and uh, that want to hold gold in the cheapest format. They still want to hold physical. And the most inexpensive way to buy physical gold is the larger the bar you buy, the cheaper it is relative to the cost to manufacture the bar. So some of the bigger mutual funds or fund traders or pension funds will buy 400 ounce gold bars and have them stored mm-hmm. um, as, as a, you know, sort of a group investment. Uh, but from the guy sort of on the street walking in, uh, it's very seldom that they'll buy a 400 ounce gold bar. And, it, and, it, and you can always melt them down into paver stones if needed. you've got that right (laughs) Peter thanks for coming on the show Uh, it's been a lot of fun I know your time is tight but we appreciate you coming in and sharing your knowledge and experience we'll leave links in the show notes for all the Kitco stuff definitely encourage listeners to take a look and visit the retail outlets if they're ever in Hong Kong where's the other location Uh, Montreal Montreal there you go All right, Peter thanks a lot and have yourself a great day thank you Sam my pleasure so that was actually really interesting. I, I honestly did not think I'd be at all interested in investing in gold. That's just not part of my portfolio. But I think if if nothing else, it opened my eyes to see who actually invests and why they do. So who, how and when would you buy gold and or metal? I always say gold, just kind of generalizing metals. But when would you feel like you want to you go out and buy metals? And what circumstance or which scenario? So I don't think I've ever told anyone this, but... My dad is alive today because of gold. Well, that's a big, uh, that's a big statement. Do tell. So my last name uh, in Chinese is actually gold. It's uh, Jing, which is the, the symbol for, for 24 karat gold. And when he was two, he had to escape. Uh, well, I guess my, my grandmother uh, had to take him on horseback with a satchel of gold and escape China to Taiwan. And they paid their wow. way through, you know, the like, just, like you know, just through and and to not get killed uh, with with gold because that was the only thing that people would take then. Maybe we should have him him on invest like a boss and talk it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, he doesn't obviously he doesn't remember because he's only two. So I had to hear about it from like my my like older uncles and um and you know kind of other people in the family. But it's it's crazy, and I think that would be the only situation when I would actually buy gold is I would buy. You know, and now, especially now after listening to this, I wouldn't buy, you know, US gold. I would buy Canadian one ounce, um, maple leaf coins because they're the easiest to trade, easiest to carry. And if a situation became like that where for whatever reason, you know, the US was in war and, you know, we had to just, and, and the currency was completely devalued, I would jump on that straight away. But I think, uh, I'm not going to buy gold now in preparation for that to happen. Uh, I would only buy it like once that actually started happening. So that's an interesting story. And I have a pretty interesting story I'll tell quickly as well. So I mentioned on the episode that I bought that one piece of, of gold uh, that I put in my safety deposit box. Well, that was my first piece. And I kept getting into the, you know, we, we had Simon Black on the show re, uh, previously. I started really getting into this internationalizing myself type of thing. So I kept buying and accumulating gold. But for whatever reason, I decided not to hold it in Hong Kong. And instead, like an idiot, I held it at our manufacturing facility in Shenzhen, China, because our manufacturing partner had a big safe there. And I'm like, hey, you know, I'll just can I just keep my gold in your safe? Well, one day he emails me. He's like, hey, buddy, uh, little problem. Our safe got stolen. And I, at the time, I had like $20,000 worth of gold coins in there. 
and he also had a bunch of gold in there. And my immediately, my immediate thought was bullshit. Like no way. Right. And he sent me photos and like the, the safe had actually been ripped out, but he also knew I had 20 grand of gold in there. So maybe he like staged it. And so my predicament was, what do I do? If, if he, if he actually got stolen, that's my fault, right? He's, he's just doing it as a, a friendly favor. But if, uh, but if it didn't get stolen, I mean, if, if he staged it, then there's a big, there's a big issue there in our friendship and our work relationship. So he's just like, look, I feel horrible. I'm going to pay you. I'm going to pay you back in cash. I go, well, if it really got stolen, I, I don't, I can't take that from you. Right. Like that's, that's, that's not your fault. That's my fault. I, you're just doing me a favor. But he's like, no, 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 I, I have to pay you back for it. And he ended up just wiring me the money. Uh, so I didn't actually have a loss there, but it did make me a bit scared to own metals in any type of unsecure environment ever again. Yeah, definitely. And actually, I was looking at Kitco.com and just looking at what you know how much a gold coin is and what it looks like. It looks pretty cool. And I was thinking it'd be nice to have a couple you know gold coins just to have. But mm-hmm. I'm traveling. I'm sometimes I'm staying in dorms once in a while, and I don't want to lose a gold coin that is worth you know right now what it's a thousand three hundred dollars for a one ounce coin. Yeah. Well, Simon Black is a big advocate of traveling with a gold coin, although he probably travels in a, a little bit nicer style than you and I do. <laughs> but, you know, a, a gold coin is a lot easier to conceal than a thousand dollars in cash or whatever it is, fourteen hundred dollars in cash. So he's always a big advocate of, of traveling with one. I think that's a little that's too much money for me to travel with. But it's a good thought anyways. Yeah. You know, I guess they have smaller gold coins. I'm taking a look right now. There's a one tenth of an ounce uh, Canadian maple leaf that's worth $144. I wonder how small these are. Is it the size, size of like a dime or something? A gold one ounce coin that's like 1300 bucks is about the size of a quarter, like a big quarter, just solid gold. You know what? I want one now. I, I think I want one just half, but I really don't think uh, it would be the best investment you know, for me uh, besides the actual kind of just – just the value of knowing that you can hold something in your hand that's actually worth something versus having a bunch of mm-hmm. zeros and ones in your bank account or having, you know, this paper currency that, you know, can or, I mean, is most likely going to continue being worth something, but can, can change at any time. Yeah. I, I read a really interesting stat. Don't, don't quote me on it because I, I couldn't, I just, I read it and then I couldn't find it, but it said that 60, uh, physical gold sales since the election are down 62%, which is a big, big number. But that's only for physical gold. So like actual gold swaps and, and futures, the price of gold hasn't gone down. It's actually gone up. But people aren't buying physical gold because the high net worth individuals are now risk on and they're investing in equities instead of investing in physical gold, which tends to happen in really bad markets or geopolitical turmoil. People will invest in, in physical bullion as kind of a hedge against a, a bad uh, future incident, right? Yeah, and I think the like the, the people that he described in category one, the you know, realist slash, you know, whatever the opposite of realist is, people that are, mm-hmm. are scared the the US is gonna go to crap. I think a lot of them were Trump supporters and they they believe uh, that Trump is going to better the economy and that they're not gonna need to have the gold as a backup. Um, if you guys haven't read the book Emergency by Neil Strauss, it's all about preppers or people that kind of prep for kind of disaster or um, not really disaster as in like a natural disaster, but more like the world coming to an end um, mm-hmm. or the economy crashing. And it was a great book. It was just very entertaining to read. And I, I have to admit that for at least six months after reading that book, I started stocking up on food and water and kind of just prepping for what may happen. So I, I think at the time, if I if I was able to afford uh, Canadian maple leaf coins, I probably would have bought some. It's not a bad idea. Everything you said, I think that's smart to do, anyways. Right? If we have, if we actually had a house and a garage. The first thing I'd probably put in it's you know twenty liters of water. It's just not a bad thing to have laying around in any any type of circumstance. And there was one question that I wanted to ask Peter on the episode. I totally forgot, and that was around cryptocurrencies. Cryptocurrency is pretty hot topic right now. We did an episode with Chris Dunn on it. Uh, so I asked him. I'll just read what I wrote by, to him by email and his answer. It was. Uh, Peter, will Cucko always focus on physical metals or will it venture into trading other things such as cryptocurrencies? And he responded, I can envision Kiko offering metals against cryptocurrencies in the near future, whereby clients can pay or receive a cryptocurrency for settlement. I do not envision Kiko offering a currency trading service. So I thought okay. that was pretty interesting. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. And it'd be nice to see 
you know, there being a way to cash out your cryptocurrencies into something physical like a gold coin. Yeah, for sure. Uh, if you guys haven't heard the episode on silver bullion is another episode that we dedicated earlier to metals and what they're doing in Singapore at silver bullion is very, very cool, very innovative. They actually offer a peer to peer lending program against your gold. So if you own gold, you can receive peer to peer lending. And if you're, if you want to lend money, you can collateralize the borrower's gold, uh, against the loan. So in that sense, it's secure. So something that you guys can check out if you haven't yet. That's episode 21, Silver Billion CEO and where to buy it. Boom. So Johnny, how do we summarize the episode? I think this is one of those episodes where I, I don't necessarily, I'm not going to jump in and invest uh, in precious metals. Um, just like I don't jump in and invest in every single thing that uh, that we talk about. But I think overall, it's good for me to learn. It's good for me to kind of open my mind, um, you know, maybe for all of us to just kind of understand what's out there and then to kind of make an informed decision ourselves, whether we're going to invest in it or not. Yeah, I agree totally. If you guys are in Hong Kong, I highly recommend stopping by Kiko. It's a cool experience, even if you stop and just take a look at the operation. I know I, I really enjoyed it. It was almost like a scavenger hunt for me back, uh, gosh, going back seven or eight years, my first time to Hong Kong. Uh, so I would uh, I recommend taking a look. And if you have any metal buying needs or trading needs, check out Kitco online. Yeah, definitely. So I want to give a big thank you to everyone who's been leaving these amazing five-star reviews of the podcast. I think we got five of them just this last week. So big, big thank you to to all of you. Uh, but I want to uh, just acknowledge uh, one person for today. Uh, we have, let's see, Rick A. Griffin. He says, interesting, five stars. I started with the Travel Like a Boss podcast and progressed to Invest Like a Boss podcast. Sam and Johnny bring a realistic view of investing especially for the younger generation looking to build and preserve wealth for the long term highly recommended thank you rick so much for leaving that review i also want to give a quick thank you to our sponsor this week fundrise uh, the easier way to buy real estate and e-reits online uh, you can check out the episode that we had with them on on invest like a boss or if you can if you want to sign up and skip the waiting list go to investlikeaboss.com/fundrise and thanks again for listening and i'll see all of you guys next week. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Best Like a Boss podcast. Join our mailing list at investlikeaboss.com to get exclusive access to our insider investment portfolios and our private members forum. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends and leave us a review in the iTunes store. It helps more than you know. See you guys next week.